0: Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hey everybody welcome back to the next episode of the mindful dietitian podcast it's great to have you here and so thank you so much for tuning in So my most recent guest was the wonderful, the sensational Kimmy Singh. Now I would be so surprised if you haven't heard of Kimmy or are not currently following her work. Kimmy is one of those really incredible dietitians who appears to have, unsurprisingly, risen to some kind of meteoric fame amongst the dietitian world. Now the reason I'm not surprised is because Kimmy has this beautiful blend of um, genuine compassion, warmth, humour. And she also provides a really unique perspective as a person with lived experience in a fat body, as a fat dietitian. And I just really wanted to mention up up front that I'm using the word fat as a neutral descriptor of someone's body size. And it's a it's a word that I've taken Kimmy's uh, signal from. So Kimmy describes herself as a fat dietitian. And so taking my cue from Kimmy, I will use that word um, to honour Kimmy's uh, desires and choices to use that word for herself as well. So a little bit about the episode that we recorded which was just so so super fun. Uh, Kimmy is incredibly wise and just so generous and, and compassionate in the way that she shares her experience. So here, Kimmy shares her background as a fat dietitian and fat activist, and what it was really like for her navigating the traditional weight centric education route as a haze informed student. We really dig into what allyship is, what it means, what it looks like, and what it might feel like. We um you know we really dig into, well, I ask Kimmy quite a bit about how other people can be good allies um, and how we can really do good work in the world um, if we do uh, exist in the world with a significant amount of body privilege. Uh, We also talk about the history of health at every size and the health at every size movement. Um, We also talk about some tips for speaking up, especially in weight-centric circles and how to communicate really thoughtfully within the health at every size Paradigm. Uh, Kimmy shares her vision for the future of dietetics, her wishes and her desires, um, and how she has evolved to become the body positive dietitian so this is a bit of a branding change for kimmy which she has done over the past couple of months so uh since late 2019 it's now early 2020 but since about november 2019 kimmy has rebranded as the body positive dietitian so you can find her there on instagram and facebook and that's also the name of her website um i was so thrilled to originally um connect with Kimmy quite a few years ago at the binge eating disorder conference and then most recently at the weight inclusive nutrition and dietetics symposium in uh, in Washington DC where Kimmy was a keynote speaker uh, as you'll hear here you know Kimmy has so much wisdom to share so I really um I you know I'm really excited to to bring you this this particular episode so Kimmy was of course uh very quickly snapped up by uh by Lindsay Krasner and her team um, in Brooklyn, New York, and so Kimmy is now working actively as um, an eating disorder dietitian for LK Nutrition, which is where you can find her, uh, where you can find her practicing. Um, and if you wanted to send your clients to Kimmy, that's where you can, that's where you can find her. Of course, Kimmy is a is a committed health at every size advocate, um, as well as being a fat activist. Um, and one, also, one thing also that's important to know about Kimmy is that she is available for presenting and, and consulting, obviously uh, on, uh, on a paid arrangement. Um, and she speaks so beautifully about weight stigma um, across the board and especially in dietetics and dietetics training. Uh, so you can find Kimmy at www.bodypositivedietitian.com or on Instagram at bodypositive underscore dietitian. So again, thank you so much for being here. I am so thrilled to bring you this conversation with Kimmy Singh. Thanks again. Welcome, Kimmy, to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It is absolutely fantastic to be speaking with you today.
1: Thank you, Fiona. It's so nice to be here with
0: you. So Kimmy, you and I met first at the Binge Eating Disorder Conference a number of years ago and have kept in touch and most recently we crossed paths again at the Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics Symposium, which was a big thrill in Washington DC. So you spoke, you were one of the, shall we call it keynote speakers? We can, we can. (laughs) I'll take that honor on. (laughs) Why not? Why not? And you um, did this beautiful presentation, which really stepped us through the history of Health at Every Size. And so um, I loved that presentation so much. And I was hoping that you wouldn't mind stepping us through that today. But before we do that, Do you mind telling us a little, just a little bit about yourself? Because, you know, um, you are becoming a very prominent podcast guest (laughs) (laughs) and, um, and I have already directed people to other podcasts where, where they can get a really in-depth insight into your background. So do you want to give us maybe the, the brief Kimmy version?
1: Yeah, sure. So I am a fat dietitian based in New York city. And I guess, yeah, I feel like what makes me special is that I'm fat and a dietitian. Um, And so I try to use that to sort of create awareness that healthcare professionals and specifically dietitians really come in all shapes and sizes and that body diversity does not, yeah, body diversity still applies to healthcare professionals. Um, Yeah. So I try to include that in my fat activism. And also when I see clients one-on-one, yeah, it's been really nice (laughs) And I knew that I wanted to be a haze provider before I started studying nutrition, which made, um, yeah, learning the traditional nutrition route very interesting, to say the least.
0: Absolutely. So I'm curious to hear how your, uh, your learnings about health at every size and then being a dietetic student, what kind of skills did that equip you with in being a student?
1: Yeah. Great question. Well, I definitely felt like beforehand I had to be able to compartmentalize and know that, yeah, like what I'm going to be learning isn't necessarily what's aligned with my values. So it really allowed me to create space for the duality of sitting with professionals and colleagues that you might respect in a lot of ways that, you know, also like pathologize your body and may just think bodies like yours don't exist. And so it's really difficult to hold space and hold peace for that truth. Um, yeah, so I feel like it helped me up my compassion game and my empathy game and just to sort of grow within myself to find my voice through it all.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so wonderful. I, I wonder if it helped you in terms of critical analysis too with, um, and how to kind of tease apart or disentangle the, the weight centric messaging from, you know, um, from the care that we're aiming to provide people as dietitians
1: absolutely and I think that's one thing I could bring to the table is that other voice of reason as to why are we doing these things that haven't really been proven effective why is nobody having the conversations about why intentional weight loss (laughs) doesn't work Um, yeah so I tried to change those conversations and also bring the whole body image piece to the classroom which I did find that other students were really excited to hear and it was really supported in my department
0: yeah that's that is absolutely fantastic. So in terms of uh allyship we might if it's is it okay with you if we kind of talk a little bit about allyship? Yeah, absolutely. What a great subject. <laughs> I know it's one of my favorites. So when I say the word allyship, can you tell me a little bit about what that word means to you?
1: Yeah, allyship, gosh. Um I feel like it's somebody who really can step aside and be an accomplice. And that's something that I know I've just seen so many people say online, so I can't take credit for it, but really transforming your allyship to being an accomplice. And yeah, I think that means like recognizing your privilege, recognizing that although you may have struggled in your body, even if it's a thinner body, doesn't mean that you don't have room to grow in terms of understanding how society just may be uplifting your body type. And it's really asking those difficult questions to yourself, which I know is hard. It takes a lot of work. Um, I think it also takes stepping aside intentionally to create space for the voice of the fat people. And that means giving up opportunities, um, maybe creating connections between people that reach out to you and they're looking for you to speak on weight stigma. And you say, hey, listen, why don't you speak to somebody who has lived experience um, yeah, so I think it's doing the hard work to know that it doesn't mean that your, your experience is less valid. It's just going to be different without having that societal oppression.
0: Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. I think what a lot of, um, privileged folks and, and dietitians, let's just kind of refer to our own profession, feel maybe, uh, feel very motivated to, um, to involve themselves in allyship work but are not too sure exactly what it looks like, what it sounds like and what it might feel like. So I just really appreciate you kind of stepping us through a little bit of that as well. Yeah. One question I have for you, Kimmy, if you don't mind, is how can allies be considerate about uh, stepping aside and elevating the voices of our FAT colleagues or those colleagues of ours that are more marginalised and less privileged um, whilst also being thoughtful about safety um, in terms of the conversations that we might be unwittingly putting other people in the face of. And I guess my question is, is that even our role to name, name safety? I know that's something I'm really careful of. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, if I step aside and invite somebody else into this, is that actually going to be a safe place for them? Um, So I'm so curious about your thoughts.
1: Yeah, so I definitely think it's up to the person in the marginalized body to decide if they have the just emotional energy to take that on. And so most of us will find that we have a good idea of what environments will be safer or not. And so when asking somebody in the marginalized body to do that emotional labor, it's really important that you're considering that into compensation. And so if you're asking a thin speaker to speak on weight stigma, and then you're asking a fat speaker to speak on weight stigma, um, yeah, I would just imagine that the emotional labor that goes into it is very different. And I would also say that thin folks, I think like dietitians, we're always trained to be the expert in the room and to deliver this great information. And so Mm -hmm. I think a great part of being an ally is knowing that you're just not the expert in this area, no matter how much information you get, or you gain around it.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that. The, the de-experting is a bit of a steep learning curve, isn't it? Because you know, it, it also comes from the top down from our national organizations that are like, you're the expert in this, you're the expert in that. So I really appreciate that so much.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if you feel like, you know, I think sometimes that's where our ego can get in the way (laughs) and it can be really humbling to name that. Um, Yeah. And so naming that you're not the expert doesn't mean that you're not an ally. It just means that you're trying to be a better ally in my opinion.
0: Yeah. And I really respect that opinion. You have the lived experience and um, you know, naming that for us who are always trying to do better is um, is extremely helpful thank you so much Kimmy really appreciate that
1: thank you yeah thanks for giving me space to discuss it
0: (laughs) of course of course so if it's okay we might uh, change gear because I would really love to invite you to speak a little bit about the history of the health at every size movement you did such a beautiful job at the WIND Symposium. And um, and I think this is something that that every dietitian really needs to be aware of if we're, if we're going to name ourselves as hazeline Professionals.
1: Yeah, sure. Gosh. So the way I did it at WIND, I think it's kind of a fun way to do it, is I went back to the 1800s <laughs> and I started off with Sylvester Graham, who I believe is a Protestant minister. And he was this gentleman, like with a very kind of like a Puritan influence on his values, who said that food has a really big impact over people sort of leaning into their indulgences and how it's so terrible to lean into those indulgences, that pleasure, all of that. And so he said there were a few different foods that were terrible for people when it comes to just being overly indulgent. And one was, I think, meat, and he promoted vegetarianism, but the other one was, like, regular flour. So he promoted what he called graham flour, like chickpea flour. And so he sold these things that we now know to be graham crackers, which really <laughs> <cut> <laughs> up because, like, this as somebody who spends a lot of time dieting, like, I had so many graham crackers in my life, oh. and who would have thought, like, there's this long history. <laughs> but oh. from what I understand back then, they didn't taste as, like – good as they do now if you consider them good you know <laughs> mixed reviews I'm sure well well they're good with the marshmallow and chocolate <laughs> <laughs> I agree more. we're dipped into hot chocolate I can't correct lie. exactly yeah so um yeah Sylvester Graham it's so funny I think if he knew we were creating s'mores out of those Graham crackers I'd imagine he wouldn't be too happy but that makes me just want to s'more even more
0: <laughs> Col- correct s'more even more yes yeah. let's do it
1: Yes, gosh. So I really like starting with that place because I think it's a really nice time marker of food being used as something that you can um, define morality around and try to control other parts of your existence and avoiding pleasure around. Um, and it also kind of goes to show just how like these Protestant, these Puritan views really influenced um, sort of like his his rigidity around all of these things. So. And then as you sort of go move on, like fast forward all the way to the 1900s, there is more of an upholding of thin bodies in society. I do kind of wonder how the advancement of photography had an influence here and sort of just people being able to like see other bodies and see actresses, singers in such a like more mass marketed way. But um, yeah, that's like my own personal theory. <laughs> more to explore, I guess. But then if you move down to like 1950, there was the publication of the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. And for those listening who haven't heard of it, um, it was when, oh gosh, what are they called? The folks who decided not to participate in the war that were drafted. um, Conscientious
0: conscientious objectors.
1: Yes, conscientious objectors. Thank you.
0: So (laughs) yeah, so
1: they went through this experiment of, um, they were fed a very low-calorie diet, and they became very obsessed with food. And anybody who knows who's been on a diet, like, no, no surprise there. But um, I think I heard a story. I don't know if this is true, so please don't hold me <laughs> hold me to this. But I heard a story that one of them, like, cut off his thumb or, like, he intentionally caused physical injury so he could be excluded from this oh, experience. wow. Yeah. But then I believe after he was excluded, there was so much guilt and he wanted to be back in the experiment. Oh. If I'm if that story is true, but I think it's something I learned in school. But yeah, so this was in nineteen fifty, right? And then fast forward to nineteen sixty, I feel like so much happened because you had the twiggy craze, who is this very thin, like I kind of consider her the early Kim Kardashian because <laughs> yes. kind of showed people like what bodies should look like. Um. yeah which is so interesting so like this body is really put in a pedestal and she's young and girls were thinking this is how I should look and so then in the same year in Queens New York a woman who I she identified as overweight that's not the word I'd use but she um, invited her friends over to discuss eating and food and weight loss and that became what is now known as Weight Watchers oh, and so- awesome <laughs> Yeah, I'm convinced that it's not a coincidence that and Weight Watchers start kind of came to be in the same year, but yeah, something else to explore. And then um, nine years later, I think it was just a month or so, maybe two weeks after the Stonewall riots, um, sort of across the river in New York and Staten Island, there was the first NAFA meeting, and NAFA is the National Advancement Oh, gosh, sorry, a National Association for the Advancement of Fat Acceptance. And so it was started by um, a couple of gentlemen, I believe, whose wives were fat. And it's, yeah, like they kind of realized the stigma that their wives experienced and they wanted to maybe like create some community around that. And yeah, so that was NAFA. And that's kind of what I think a lot of people use as a place marker for the start of the fat acceptance movement. Um, yeah, and then like throughout the 70s, there's more talk about feminism and fatness, and then there are also sort of like people within NAFA and also other groups forming that recognize um, feminism and how it wasn't necessarily upheld with certain people in NAFA, and there were some divisions there, but also some great activism going on for people that are more marginalized, marginalized um, intersectional identities. And I feel like it's pretty exciting because I think that's when around the country there are a lot more um, rumblings of fat positivity (laughs) in these groups of people that just have this lived experience of oppression and yeah, finding support around their bodies. And then, um, yeah, I think it's really important to note (laughs) that in 1984, well, first let's discuss 1980s, excuse me. So the 1980s was sort of this like Fitness craze of a time, and so it really cracks me up because I think of like the um like the workout videos from the eighties. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. And I'm like, I w- yeah, it's just really funny to me. So I think you know, the, the leonards and all that stuff. Oh God. But yeah, and I think it was. In the 80s, that obesity, quote-unquote obesity, was declared a disease. And so it's really the pathologizing of fatness mm-hmm. um, to kind of a new, like, level of, yeah, like, seeing it more as this giant crisis. And... um then in 80, 1984, Deborah Gard had her like dance fitness class, <laughs> which I think is really special. Just knowing, like, for anybody else listening who je- Deborah Gard is their hero, like, <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. a really nice, special time in history that I like to point out. But so, like, throughout the 80s, there's more national, like, Americans specifically that I know of, um, increase in regional queer fat positive groups. And then, um, Yeah, like throughout the 90s, it seemed like there were more healthcare professionals that were kind of gaining this understanding of like diets don't work and now what? Like where does this take us? And so I think it's really special to note that that happened after all the work of the fat activists in you know the 70s and 80s Uh, and um yeah so when i think of where we are now it just wouldn't be possible without the people who started this and i i know now it's hard because there aren't enough people that are fat positive so i can't imagine back then without the internet (laughs) without the internet and you're really starting a movement um. yeah, it just makes me feel really inspired for the future because they start, really started with such a little community and have created so much. Um, yeah. So from what I understand, and this is what I've been told, is that like th- um, later in the 90s, there was like uh, sort of like a haze-ish think tank. So like the ideas of what is Health at Every Size Now were kind of being discussed amongst healthcare providers in California. And um, I just like to think that those were kind of like the founding, I don't want to say founding fathers, founding parents, <laughs> founding parents who helped to resize. And um, yeah, it's just kind of exciting. And then um, when you kind of go down to like, I think the year 2000, like San Francisco banned weight discrimination. And there were a lot a lot of great activists involved in all of that, like including Marilyn Wan and some other folks and some fun stories around it. And then in 2003, um, ASDA, like the Association Association for Size Diversity in Health, was established. And I would, and then like down in 2011, the Health at Every Size, um, Health at Every Size was trademarked, and ASDA has the trademark. And I would say anybody listening that wants to learn more, like check out the ASDA website for the Health at Every Size history. That's where I got a lot of this information. And also, like, speaking with fat activists who've done so much. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's, it's a really fun way to learn more about what the work we're doing now.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing. And especially, um, when do you think some of the, the more science started? Would you, would you say that started more with um, Dr. Linda Bacon, that kind of era? Is that our guess? Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've seen,
1: yes, but I've also kind of want to note that when I look through the literature and sort of look through the weight stigma research, um, if we're just putting a time timeline on it, I feel like the bulk of the research I've seen, it's like it's after 2000, you know, like right. I feel like it's closer to between somewhere between like 2005 and maybe 2012, mm-hmm. where there just started to be more actual liter- literature there. And yeah, so I can see just how much of a shift it's taken, which really blows my mind. Because when you look at like the history of any other type of science um, advancement, it's we're really at such a short point. Wow. <laughs> like We're really just getting started. So we just have so much to learn, which is exciting.
0: It is. It is really exciting. And probably notable also that there has been an escalation in diet culture as well over that time, which is probably not by accident, I would say, you know, that there's this, there's these collisions of ideas and, um, you know, collisions of cultures really in so many ways.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I know I mentioned briefly like when fatness was declared a disease, but, um, yeah, like if you sort of go on through the nineties and the early two thousands, It just became this really loud, um, yeah, sort of, I like to think of it as something on the news that really caught people's attention Mm -hmm. and it became something to discuss, like family discussions or families being interviewed and it became more of a spectacle. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I feel like, like there's, fat phobia has been around for a while, Mm -hmm. but the spectacle of healthism involved Mm -hmm. when we're discussing this, it's really taken a turn
0: yeah definitely and uh probably uh remiss of us not to mention that our profession also has been very much involved in that um in ways that that perpetuate a lot of fat phobia
1: exactly very much so and now yeah like for so for me like i'm a newer dietitian but like yeah like i just see that it seems like the response to some of the fat activism and hay is is people trying to be louder in their ideas, you know, related to Mm -hmm. rigidity, related to like completely against body diversity and the research just isn't supporting it, which is so interesting to me. And I've heard so many stories from researchers having trouble getting their work published because it's not really feeding into this idea that fatness is the worst thing ever. (laughs) And so, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I think that one day like we'll get more information out there in that way, but until then it just, yeah, it feels really telling that the, they're having so much trouble getting work published.
0: Yeah. Um, Kimmy, the other day I was actually at a, um, at what's called a, a round table. I don't know whether that's in kind of an international term, but where people are kind of brought in and, you know, it's like a think tank type thing. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank <laughs> Thank you okay. <laughs> no, yeah. that's okay. I'm always unsure as to, how different terms translate. Um, and it was really, it was interesting because the round table, the topic of the round table was framed around weight. So I spent the whole day, (laughs) um, debunking that crap. Um, and yet it was interesting that the whole think tank really in terms of how this, um, very, uh, high up kind of political, um, funding stream could be used was all about um, stigma and equity and social justice and um, really serving folks who are the most marginalized. So it was really, it didn't, it didn't pass me by that the question that we were asking from policy and political level, i.e. where the funding was coming from and how we were framing that around weight or how that was framed around weight. And yet the participants were all the participants of this, uh, round table we're all really supporting uh, environments and um, and ways in which we can support greater equity and access
1: particularly oh, yeah. for
0: those who are most marginalized so mm-hmm. this the reason I was thinking about this is because what you raise is a very core cool point it's how can we uh, stop accepting funding through weight focused streams when it seems as though that's the way that people are corralled in eating yeah. disorders. That's the case. It seems like in public health and um, for example, childhood nutrition, mm-hmm. it seems to still be the case that unless we frame it around weight, that funding is very uh, damned up. Yeah, I don't a- know. What were your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, It makes me really upset because I think there's this really big piece of nobody talking about the fact that we don't have a way to promote intentional weight loss. And so it's one of those things where even just like dietetics training as a whole, it's just not part of the conversation. And so if these these major institutions want to uphold this and receive funding from these other organizations that uphold it. I just don't understand why they're brushing all of these facts to the side Mm -hmm. because I think at the end of the day, no matter how you want to cut it, it really boils down
0: to that truth. It does. Yeah. I I find myself getting, that's, that's one thing that I find that quite activating and very agitating, especially when I'm in, you know, in those circles, I, (laughs) All of my mindfulness practice, I just have to bring it all, like every <laughs> single one of those skills. I'm just gr- grasping for every single one of those skills. Yeah. Um, so I'll be really interested to, you know, continue this conversation with you and with other people in our profession so that we can really press for policies and funding streams which are rooted in true equity and social justice and de- destigmatizing. Mm-hmm. Um, what we name as healthcare,
1: yeah, um, and know, it would be great to have fat people at the table. Part of making oh my God. decisions, and really, yeah, um, yeah.
0: Well, it's it, it has to happen. Like that has to happen. We can't be making, especially political decisions, without people with lived experience, both past mm-hmm. and present and future. People in fat bodies, people in marginalized bodies, exactly. um, at the table.
1: Yeah, and even like the weight stigma research and all of that, there's just no reason why we just have been researchers that are putting together models of what they theorize will work. Yeah, with lacking lived experience. I just feel like even from a non Haze perspective, it makes no sense. (laughs) So yeah, I don't know.
0: Well, if you think about it, you don't get that in disability circles. You don't get it in um, Aboriginal or Indigenous circles, do you? Yeah.
1: Yeah, like here, oh gosh, what's it called? Community-based research. I think I'm forgetting part of the acronym, but they're starting to really shift the focus. So I, near, I know here there are some indigenous circles where the folks in the communities are actually making decisions about yes. how they want to structure interventions and change the way money is allotted. And yeah, so it's I'm hoping that's kind of the direction we could take a lot of other mm-hmm. research and funding, but you can only hope.
0: <laughs> well, I think we just need to, you know, keep pressing in that direction. Yeah, I yeah. completely agree. Yeah, and also hold. I mean, if we loop back to our profession as well, I've got a little <laughs> B by my bonnet at the moment about the way our about the way our profession has conducted itself as a profession, and the way it's upheld very fatphobic ideas. Um, and then, I guess the question is then, how do we go about dismantling this? I feel like we're on the train, but and Kimmy, you are very much one of those engine drivers for sure.
1: Thank you. Oh my gosh, I really appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that dietitians can do this great thing of getting involved at their local places where dietitians are being trained. And so you can try to be a guest speaker, you can try to just get volunteers or interns to work with you and really show people that there is another way to practice. And also, there's this whole piece that you're not really necessarily being taught in school. And I do find that so many students are interested and they want to learn. And they're really hungry for a different way. And it's that's one thing that's really surprising to me is, although we're given such little exposure to it, when I spoke, speak to interns or students about this, they're just so interested in learning. a little bit of a deeper perspective of nutrition. <laughs> and there's so much more than sitting in an office and showing plastic fruits and vegetables. And oh my God! <laughs> you know, and... And yeah, and I think they want that depth. So I think that as a dietitian, especially just using your privilege, getting involved where dietitians are being trained. And then because if students are speaking up and they're telling their faculty, you know, we want to learn more about this. I know where I did my master's, they've been making a lot of great changes to include this like weight stigma in the curriculum. And I just see that as being a really great piece of changing the
0: future of dietetics. I love that. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I would echo that, that that's where the future is. And if there's any students listening and you don't have health at every size content, then, uh, I'll I'll be, and I'll be interested in your thoughts on this, Kimmy. Um, my personal recommendation would is that you go to your unit chair and you ask for it. And there are plenty of people all throughout Australia who can come to your university or to your college and, um, and speak to that topic. And, Although we would love to get paid for that, um, we see it as a really worthwhile investment. So that's something that can be negotiated. So students, go talk to your unit chairs and um, petition, ask, ask, hassle, hassle. Yes, do it. Do it.
1: I promise. Yeah, you'll be really surprised with the outcomes. And if it's something where a faculty member doesn't want to necessarily, you know, include a new guest speaker in the class, they have their syllabus set up. There's always um, sort of outside of events you can try to do at school, like through your nutrition club. And that's some, yeah, it was really helpful for me when I was trying to get more conversation around this. And you'd be surprised at how much interest there is both in nutrition departments and in other departments.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things that a, a colleague of ours did in in another city when um, she was finding it really hard to kind of get that foot in the door, she held a, 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 I think it was like a lunchtime session or a late afternoon session in the local pub.
1: Oh, wow. I
0: love that. That is very smart and very strategic. Right? And I, can, you know, I love that. Yeah, I
1: think it, just, it also brings it down to, yeah, just kind of taking the rigidity away from it. And it doesn't have to be this very formal, uncomfortable, stiff environment to discuss nutrition or professional topics.
0: No, and I mean, health at every size over a beer. Come on, it can't get better than that.
1: Yeah. Can't get better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there are all kinds of ways that we can get creative. And as you and I both know, Kimmy, once you hear it, you can't, you can't unhear it again. Exactly. And you're planting so many seeds. You just don't know who it's going
1: to impact. Absolutely. yeah. And like students listening, speaking up in class, that's another thing. I remember the first time I spoke up in class about something like this. I was really uncomfortable and nervous. And I was really surprised by how many students approached me after and said, you know, that made a big difference or I had an eating disorder or like, I just really appreciate you saying that. And it just made it easier for the next time I needed to speak up.
0: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of students are nervous to speak up because of the uh, power structures that are in place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is there any kind of um, any kind of tips you would give to students around that, Kimmy? Because I know that's one of the co- most common questions. Is I really wanted to speak up? I felt so upset about this, that, or the other, and I just didn't feel like I could
1: yeah you know what was helpful for me was finding faculty members that were more i guess supportive in my views so even if they didn't necessarily share them completely they just know that there, you know there might be something that they could relate to around it and so having that outlet and having that person who isn't in a position of power have like be able to support you in that way it can make a big difference in your experience
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for people who are looking to do a a bit more allyship, if you have got um, some size diversity in your class and you're looking to do some more allyship that just remembering that it doesn't fall on that, on that person to speak up and that allyship.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really doesn't. And yeah, and that's where I would say, yeah, that part of being an ally is knowing when it's appropriate and not appropriate. To, you know, to even just expect somebody to like it's ultimately up to the person who's in the marginalized body. But um yeah, it shouldn't it shouldn't just be thrown on them or you shouldn't just ask someone on one like, how do you feel about this? You just don't know if just because somebody is in a larger body doesn't mean they're necessarily haze or ready to really approach this or yeah, they shouldn't have that extra burden.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you are in a cohort of all smaller bodied students, then, um, allyship is not always, um, the allyship is often, uh, invisible in lots of ways, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not that we go on Instagram and announce how we have supported our fat colleagues or our fat clients or our marginalized in any way, shape or form, um, mm-hmm. clients or colleagues. So, would you say that a lot of the kind of the work that we do in there is, is very much in the background and it's very much the chipping away in a in a uh, in a less uh, in a less visible way
1: hmm i would say that like the bulk of anybody's work shouldn't be on social media yes and i would say honestly like for me as like there are so many providers i met who they're kind of like confused about haze or they're introduced to body positivity and they don't really know if they're fat positive or if fat activist ally and so being able to see that they're including it in their branding is really important for me because i feel like it also shows that they're not scared of losing thin thin clients because of it that they want to be clear about where they stand on this and for me it means a lot when they take that when they kind of take that risk because i know that you don't know what's going to happen when you do
0: yeah thank you so much that's so wise yeah It's
1: but yeah, it's I totally understand that like when branding, everybody sort of doing what feels like it resonates best with them. But for me, it's been helpful to for the folks who decide to share that publicly.
0: Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Um, I guess just to clarify, was I guess I was more meaning like in a student context. Like if you're in a in a smaller-bodied cohort, that you know if you do speak up in class, you're not going to jump on Instagram and say, "Hey, guess what." I spoke up in class. You're going to be like, no, no, the work that you do is to speak up in class. It's not to jump up and down and tell people about it necessarily have those discussions amongst your cohort. Um, And I really appreciate your reminder about being brave in our branding.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. But I, I understand what you're saying. It shouldn't be something that's for show. It should be because you sincerely stand by it, and if, yeah, I think that with social media, it's important to examine your intentions around what you're deciding to share about your activism.
0: hmm Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, one of the more common questions that comes up for dietitians is about how we can. Be really thoughtful in the way that we communicate so whether that is verbally in the written form or um, you know in the in the many different ways that we communicate um, so how can we talk about bodies without pathologizing and um, without necessarily centering weight in our messaging
1: yeah, great. So, um I always recommend not using the words overweight or obese because like they are straight from the BMI ranges and yeah, I feel like the the words are really originated originated from this way of pathologizing bodies. So, although you might not have that intention, you're really kind of keeping the BMI range validity alive when you're using it to describe bodies. Um, I, I like to use the word fat. I find it a great neutral descriptor. It's been helpful for me to reclaim it from some of the negative connotations it has been presented to me in my and earlier in my life. But um for those who don't feel comfortable or ready or whichever, um you could say larger bodied, person of size, heavier. Um yeah, and then I think it's so important to like not identify somebody's fat if they don't identify that way themselves. And that's one where it's really important and I think it can be really easy to make a mistake there and yeah, I hope that answers your question.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, look, it's not an easy question or a straightforward question.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, but, uh, but it's something that a lot of dietitians ask who really deeply care. Yeah, hmm, definitely,
1: exactly. No problem.
0: And it's also, I wonder, Kimmy, whether it's a really useful way that we can respond, for example, if we get a referral from a doctor that uses pathologising and weight centering language, I wonder whether it's a a way that we can communicate maybe back to doctors in ways that uh, role model the decentering
1: yeah and i think that it can be a really great way to explain you know i found that in order to support my clients it's really important to reinforce that i do support body diversity and so that means using terms outside of where we're overweight or obese and yeah i feel like you just don't know exactly how people are going to respond but it's great to put that out there
0: yeah definitely and pro- and promote what we do do with people yeah
1: exactly exactly yeah
0: Yeah, dietitians are not getting a very – we're not uh, getting a very good run at the moment, are we, (laughs) in terms of reputation?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, some of us are changing it, like
0: you and some of the other great – Oh, (laughs) thank you. It's it's a chipping away, but, you know, we're getting there. Yeah. Kimmy – my last question for you before, uh, before I'm going to be asking uh, you to tell people where to find you is I'm so curious to ask you about your vision for our profession, your vision for the future of dietetics. Well, how would you like to see us moving forward from here?
1: Yeah, I would love to see dietetics just sort of be more uncomfortable with things that are not happy and pleasant and positive. And I think that so many times we're told that if we can just tell people to eat or do things a certain way, we can package it up in a really beautiful package and just push it out the door. And in reality, I feel like life is really complicated and messy, people are complicated and messy. And so whether somebody is haze or not, I feel like just being able to sit with the fact that we don't know everything, but we can just support that it's okay to be uncomfortable. That's where I would hope that I can see more dietitians being one day.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. The, the, the pool of discomfort, discomfort, come swim in our pool. Yeah. (laughs) There's lots of us here. You're not alone. Exactly. (laughs) No, I love that. I think that that's a much needed, uh, well overdue, probably place to be and, and, and not typical, not typical for our profession. So it would be a courageous move. Yeah, very courageous. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I really appreciate that. So you've got some exciting things happening in Kimmy Singh land in terms of where you're heading, your business is heading. So tell us a little bit about this. What can we expect moving forward?
1: <laughs> well, so I am in the process of rebranding. So hopefully by the time this airs, you could find me at com or on Instagram at bodypositive underscore
0: dietitian. Fantastic. So... Um can I ask just a little bit about what, what what was the evolution of this of this change of branding for you?
1: Oh gosh, good question. Um hmm. It felt really important to me to sort of make sure that body positivity is being um sort of portrayed in such a way that's truly fat positive for fat liberation and so to be able to use body positive in my branding feels like quite a privilege I feel really lucky to get it <laughs> so yeah I don't know if that makes any sense it feels like a really deep thing that I haven't fully fleshed out but I'm really excited for the
0: change oh I am so excited too because body positivity belongs back in the hands of folks who have lived experience and who are living in fat bodies and all- and it really truly honors all the work of fat activists so far. So it belongs to you, Kimmy, the fat positive underscore dietitian on Instagram. Coming soon to your screens everywhere. <laughs> I'm thrilled for you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your support. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, so, uh, so bodypositivedietitian is coming. Bodypositive underscore dietitian on Instagram is coming. Uh, And anywhere else that people can find you? Um, For now, those are ones that I can guarantee will be ready.
1: (laughs) But yeah, if not, or if there's anything else, I'll keep you posted.
0: (laughs) That sounds absolutely wonderful. Kimmy, thank you so, so much for your time, your energy, your wisdom, your insight that you have shared with me and everybody else today. I appreciate you so much. And I consider myself so lucky to be in this world with you and, and being able to, to share, to share space and, and spend time with you. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I feel the same way about
0: you. So it's been quite a joy. Thank you so much, Kimmy. I will catch up with you again soon. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the mindful dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.